Hi, Sebastian Hussein here. You're listening to an archived episode of STEM Wars. You can find newer episodes of STEM Wars at stemwars.buzzsprout.com. That's S-T-E-M-O-I-R-S dot buzzsprout.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else your favorite podcasts are. In today's episode, we have quite a bit of trouble with the sound, so sorry about that. But thanks for listening. Oh, oh. <laughs> How, what if I what if I speak from here? That seems to be okay. We all have to basically touch foreheads while talking. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm gonna touch my forehead now. Let's try that. Okay, now I'm leaned in super close, and this is just where I have to stay. Testing to see where exactly I can put my mouth and still be heard. Yeah, so welcome to PodQuest, you guys. Thank you. This isn't weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like in movies when, you know, they film scenes where they're awkwardly close, but it would look bad if they stood at a normal distance apart from each other. Yeah. Oh, is that what they do? Oh, yeah, they stand, like, this close um, when they're doing dialogue. Oh, that's yeah, so weird. It's uncomfortable. I would hate close. that. Yeah. I already hate this, so. Yeah. <laughs> Great, this will be fast. Get me out here. Welcome back for another episode of PodQuest. PodQuest is the podcast by the Quest Solar Engineering Research Center. I'm your host, Joe Karras, and with me is my colleague, Sebastian Hussein. We're here again at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. We're here to explore the narratives of solar and what goes on behind the scenes of solar research. And to do that, we're speaking with uh, one of our other colleagues, fellow PhD student, Tara Nitzold. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? <laughs> Great. How did you end up in, in engineering, in science, end up applying to grad school, that sort of story? So I knew I was interested in the environment and in particular issues with climate change in high school. Okay. So when I was applying to college, I was thinking, you know, what programs could I get into that I would feel like I was making a difference? I could do research on something related to that. So I started college and I joined uh, the environmental science degree program at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So I was born and raised in New Jersey and I stayed there for college. So I started off in the environmental sciences, but uh, as a part of my program, program, we were required to do like research sophomore year of college. So I started this research project and I was working on uh, measuring degradation of water retention basins. They're those big ditches that collect rainwater. And uh, it was really boring. And I... We're in Arizona. We don't know what those (laughs) are. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) For everyone else out there that has these in their area. You know, I didn't really want to do just observe problems and report back on how, you know, atmospheric quality was changing and things like that. I wanted to really solve the problem and make, you know, have a hands-on approach to solving a problem. So I started talking to some people at the university to see how I could switch into something related still to the environment, but in engineering. And I talked to the dean of the material science department at Rutgers, and he told me about a professor who was doing research on solar energy, and he was the most enthusiastic person. He was like, we'd love to have you. He was told me, you know, I'll, uh, I can put you right away in the group with this professor, and you can start doing research with him right away. Then I told him I was late for class, and so he drove me to my class. <laughs> so after that, I was hoped he was really cool, and the department had this great feeling. They were su- everyone was super welcoming and everything, so. That's the secret to networking. Exactly. Don't be on time. He drove me in, like, a, a fancy sports car, too. It wasn't just, like, a normal car. It was, like, some $100,000 car, and I was like, this guy's cool. So then I switched to the material science program, and that's when I really started working on solar oh. energy. Okay. So you were part of the Quest research experience for undergrads several years Yep. How'd you find that program? Did someone point you to ASU? Yeah, so that happened. I think I found that pretty much on my own. It was like I stumbled upon something. And uh, I was always kind of interested in going to school or like grad school at ASU. Um, I have some family out here. So that was one of the factors was getting to live around people that I haven't seen in a while. And then uh, also, obviously, that they have a great solar program here, which you can't find so easily at other universities. Um, so I did an RU here, I think, after my junior year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for Dr. Bertoni, who I work for now. And so I was here for two months. I was working on surface passivation of silicon. So basically putting a oxide layer on top of silicon wafers or 
common material used for solar cells to make their performance or their lifetime better. And I just really liked it. I loved the group. I got to know people in the group and really liked my professor. So that sparked the interest in me wanting to really come back here and do my grad program here. So tell us a little bit about that process. You moved all the way from the East Coast to Arizona. And yeah, how did you get started? Yeah, that is a crazy story. So uh, I guess I can also go into the summer before I moved out to Arizona for my grad, started my grad school career, was I spent the summer in Japan doing research. So that was part of the same RU program that I did at ASU. It was like a second year continuation, except it was like a different project. They're not, the projects aren't connected, but the program itself that offers the funding and everything was the same. So I had flown back from Japan, I think on a Monday and then drove home to my house. I spent five days packing everything in one car with my boyfriend. (laughs) And then that Saturday we got in the car and drove for four days to come out to ASU. (laughs) And on Thursday of the next week, the school year started. So it's kind of really thrust into that transition pretty quickly going from being across the world to starting grad school, which is not easy. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about your time in Japan? Um, You were also doing engineering research there. Was it related to solar or completely different different projects? Uh, Yeah. So the project I was working on there was, well, it was originally titled Wideband Gap Semiconductors. So for me, I thought maybe it had something to do with solar, like Top, top cells for multi-junction. But then when I got there, I found out it was really a project based on MOSFETs, so metal oxide, semiconductor, field effect transistors. We prefer MOSFET for that reason. Yeah, so the project was focused on, rather than using silicon as your base for a MOSFET, your transistor device, yeah. it was using a diamond. Mm-hmm. So you can use really low quality diamond and then grow just like a few layers of epitaxial or really high quality diamond. So not using like diamond rings, it's like really impure diamond substrates that are super cheap and just helping to make way higher frequency capabilities and higher thermal capabilities by having such a robust substrate, really pushing the boundaries, like especially like, you know, for when you think of space or other applications where you really have, you're pushing the, in particular, thermal ranges of these devices. So yeah, how was it uh, doing research in a foreign country? Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting. So I was working at the National Institute of Material Science. So I was in, in Tokyo where I think more people tend to speak English. I was in like more of a smaller town. Actually, this town is was built uh, just to be like a science community. So pretty much everyone there works at the National Lab. Uh, definitely the language barrier was something that I struggled with. Um, there were a few times that my postdoc that was guiding me would tell me to do something and I was like, I have, don't know what he wants me to do. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the language barrier was pretty tough and also just into the lifestyle can be challenging. But overall, like Japan is such a beautiful country that it's really an easy place to get used to and to enjoy living in. So get used to the earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was, that was really pretty some, something pretty surprising for me. Like I've never experienced an earthquake. We don't get those in New Jersey pretty much at all. <laughs> and so there were some nights when you're laying down sleeping and you get woken up by it. It's pretty pretty crazy. And there were a few times too. My roommate, super heavy sleeper, and I'd like wake up the next morning and be like, "Oh, Sam, like, did you feel that earthquake?" She's like, "What earthquake?" And I was like, "Wow, I'm like seriously losing my mind. Like I swore I felt like everything was moving and this girl's like nothing happened." So I really felt crazy a lot of the time. So. <laughs> Yeah. It was hard to get used to. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So you've gotten to do a bit of traveling um, with uh, other research projects now as well. Uh, so why don't we talk about that a little bit? Um, what is the, the work that you do now and um, any travel related to that? The work that I do now, I guess in a very broad sense, is looking at next generation thin film solar cells. So thin films being like a new technology that would help really significantly lower the cost, as well as increase the range of application you can use for solar because with thin films you can make them into really lightweight devices so you can put them on backpacks and cars and hut roofs like in developing nations that don't have the infrastructure that we do so i my research is really focused on looking at the nature of these types of materials and how we can improve certain small scale aspects so like talking on micron to nano scale so less than a hair on your head really really super tiny uh, details in these samples and looking at how they affect the performance of the solar cell and basically, how can we manufacture cells 
going forward that would improve the efficiency or get rid of some of these performance limiting features. How did you find this project? Is this something that you came to the lab with already or? No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is okay. I think yeah. when I came, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew I liked solar energy anyway, so I didn't care. And this was an area in our lab that needed someone working on it. So I guess I'll, a majority of my research is done actually at Argonne National Laboratory. There we use the synchrotron. Argonne is uh, in southern Chicago, so just outside of Chicago in yeah. Illinois. I travel there probably about three times a year. So that's like I said, that's where the majority of like my data acquisition is done. And then I come back to ACU when I do all the analysis here, yeah. which is kind of a crazy concept. Though, it's like in about one week every four months, I get all the data that I need for like <laughs> my whole PhD. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty efficient process. So what what's a synchrotron? Yeah, so a synchrotron is a, a ring of highly accelerated uh, electrons that as they're bent around into this ring, the momentum change produces photons, so x-rays. And we use these really high intensity x-rays for, you can use them for any type of x-ray technique, like x-ray diffraction, x-ray fluorescence, um, zanes, all kinds of different, okay. anything with x yeah, in the name. <laughs> yeah, x <X-acid. laughs> Yep. So what we look at is we use XRF looking at composition and our resolution is like on the order of 40 nanometers. So we're not as good as an electron microscope, but we're really high spatial resolution, which is really awesome. Um, and so we look at this high spatial resolution and how in multi-elemental thin films, the variation in the composition might influence the performance, trying to determine how manufacturers can influence the way that they grow these samples to make higher performing solar cells. So these national labs like Argonne are a, a pretty unique working environment. Could you describe a little bit what, what that's like? Yeah, it's a pretty crazy experience working <laughs> at, at Argonne, especially like working at a synchrotron, I think, in particular. Like if you work at the National Lab, it's kind of standard, I think, in terms of lifestyle. But um, being a user at a synchrotron is super demanding because you pay like an insane amount of money for every day that you're there or a certain number of shifts, really. Um, and so you want to get your money's worth. So there's has to at all times be someone there <laughs> running the experiments. So what this results in is basically keeping a 24-hour shift schedule. So it's usually about like 12 to 16 hours one person works and then there's some overlap time and then one person goes to bed and someone else shows up. So you're working in like two person, three person teams or something yeah, like that. Yeah, for like yeah. six days straight. So I tend to work now like at night. So I usually show up to the beam at maybe 6 p.m. and I stay there until 10 a.m. the next day. And then I go to sleep for a few hours and I come back. So uh, it's pretty uh, physically exhausting and mentally exhausting. By the end of it, you're just losing your mind. Like, <laughs> yeah, good thing it's only a few weeks exactly. out of the year. Yeah, because yeah. usually you want to kill like the other people that are there with you. You're like, oh my God, like, I can't stand you anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> so can you give us a visual of what, what does this place look like? You said a ring earlier is a ring of um, accelerating electrons, but how, how large is this ring? What are the things in this ring? Yeah. So the ring, I think, at Argon is maybe a mile in diameter. I'm not exactly sure that don't quote me on that, but it's super large. Basically, mm-hmm. you can go there and do exercises and, you know, go for a run around it. And it's a pre- pretty good track uh, for running on. <laughs> do that? Sometimes people like at three in the morning, they take, there's some tricycles because it's such mm-hmm. a long distance that like the staff that works there needs to get around. So there's bikes. And sometimes people like at midnight, you know, <laughs> or 3 a.m. For inside. Yeah, for inside the ring. So I think like indoor track. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it's a big ring. And from the ring, there's a bunch of different, like, there's different degrees of, quality and recentness of the beam lines. So at Argonne, I think there's about 34 beam lines, which means there's 34 little offshoots from the ring. And that's where you have you have what you call a hutch, which is where the x-ray comes from and is uh, your samples exposed to the x-rays. And in the hutch, there's obviously like different types of detectors and setups for in-situ measurements and tomography and fluorescence. And it, all of that depends on the beam line itself and what its capabilities are. So as you go around the ring, you can see from beam line one to 34 that there's a bunch of different techniques. And so even different groups at ASU and other schools 
have their beamline as well that they go to. So it's like their their home. So we're at, I go to sector two and sector 26. Those are my zones. Yeah. And yeah, so there's like, most of the time we're at sector two, which is like a cubicle. It's kind of grungy and not, not so nice. <laughs> don't put this, don't tell Argon that I said the back. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. They focus on making the equipment really <laughs> exactly. nice and not necessarily the comforts of the, the office chairs. Exactly. Or something. Yeah, and they are expecting an upgrade, actually. Argon yeah. is getting to the synchrotron itself. They're getting a pretty huge upgrade in like, 2022 or something okay. which will significantly change or increase mm -hmm. its capabilities but yeah so that's pretty much what it looks like yeah. if you can so you it's a proper the, visual. yeah the, the, this sort of hutch where these x-rays are shooting around how do you get your sample in there are, are you using like robots or something or how do you not get hit with x-rays okay yeah so the x-rays come through a tube like a plastic pvc tube which seems crazy like it, that always blows my mind but it's like a plastic pvc tube with a piece of captain tape over it and the x-ray just burns right through it like just goes right through it and so the hutch though is like a big big room there's tons of like really large equipment so you you as a person can go in there perfectly fine it's like a closet like a walk-in closet yeah. say in size um and so you open these big steel doors though uh that are like all safety locked and everything and you go in and you can just easily mount and mount your sample and take it down and change around your detector and do all of the things that you need to do for the setup and then you do this thing which i find always kind of cool to other people is like you have to search so what that is is you have to walk around the hutch and push but certain buttons and you're supposed to like you know look under things and make sure there's no know people that like snuck into your hutch and are <laughs> going to be in there while there's x-rays on um and so you do the search process and uh you go around and push all the buttons and check the hutch and then you come out and you close the doors and it's not until the doors are completely sealed and like the search has been approved that you can turn your x-ray beam on so uh, there's a lot of safeties so that yeah. you're not being exposed to x-rays that's pretty cool yeah. Yeah. yeah although they say like um like some people certain staff wear dissimilars to make sure like that no one's actually really being exposed and the amount of x-ray exposure that you get working on a synchrotron is very very minimal yeah. like for pretty much everyone so it's actually not super high risk. Yeah. But then you're monitoring your, uh, I guess, the experiment that you're doing from the outside of the hutch and there's like screens or something. Or, yeah. It's like, know. looks like a really crazy control central. There's like usually like six to eight computer screens <laughs> and you're like running from like, not running, but like, yeah. you know, there's like a few that you're really using, keeping track of what you're doing and what measurements you're taking and then running. So moving the stage, moving the optics, which, you know, reposition your x-ray beam, mm -hmm. all kinds of things like that. And then you can take like two dimensional maps with your stage. And that's how we get like spatial information on the composition or the fluorescent signal, basically. So any any major results or cool things that you're working on right now or anything research-wise that you want to talk about? I guess right now what's really piquing my interest is I'm working on, so six solar cells. So that's copper, indium, gallium, diselenide. So they're, they have like different elements and they all sit in the crystal structure together. But when they're grown, they're grown inhomogeneously. So sometimes you have copper vacancies or indium vacancies and that influences your performance. And so one of the things that is really cool, the current interest of the research field is uh, you can use certain alkali elements like sodium or potassium and you put them into the SIGs through a variety of approaches and this helps to resolve some of the issue of the composition variation in the sample and helps to improve your performance. So that's something that we're looking at right now and kind of interesting to me because it's like an extra step that uh, commercial solar cell manufacturers can add for very little cost and significantly improve their performance. It's actually really beneficial. And I think like most a uh, good amount of people even uh, commercially making SIGs use some form of sodium treatment but it's like really the question of like, how do we optimize how much sodium and through what mechanism it's incorporated? So that's really what we're trying to understand. So I know you also spent some time in Singapore this past summer. Yeah, this yeah. past summer. Okay, summer 2017. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and that was sort of similar work? Am I right about that? Yeah, so I was, again, looking at uh, sodium and potassium in SIGs. But what we were looking at instead was transmission electron microscopy, which, like I said, with the synchrotron x-rays, we get down to 40 nanometer resolution. But when you want to understand how sodium is incorporated in a grain boundary, which is one to two angstroms. It's like, you know, atomically sharp. The synchrotron is not really good enough for that. It doesn't have that resolution. 
So using TEM, we can see much higher resolution along the boundary and how sodium interacts at the boundary, because that's what people largely guess is that sodium is most important in resolving issues at grain boundaries in six films. Yeah, I mean, so that was the question I sort of was thinking about earlier when you talk about 40 nanometer resolution at, with X-ray stuff at the synchrotron is, you know, you could get quite a bit better than that with mm -hmm. TEM, so why not just use TEM? Yeah, so with TEM, you have a really big issue of statistics. Like most of the time, it's a you take one or two images and you're like the whole a whole paper that you write is on this one very microscopic area of a sample that you looked at. Whereas with the synchrotron, we can move around like we can take maps as large as 200 microns and you can do that over and over again pretty quickly, yeah. which again is still like not representative small, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. magnitude larger exactly. get with uh, TEM. Yeah. yeah, and so you can do much larger areas and really quickly. Okay. So it gives you way increased statistics. So, which is why I think a pairing those approaches is kind of an in interesting like story because then you can really look at different length scales. So why uh, Singapore? Uh, all the way <laughs> over there to use the, their, their cheap yeah. camera. They have some really good facilities there. And... Yeah, their microscope is pretty nice. I'm not a microscopist. So I actually really don't know, but that's mm. what I've been told because I have a good microscope. Yes, and I got to go to Asia again. So <laughs> yeah, I guess it was really just set up through a network that we have. So there was a professor there who a postdoc in our lab had experience working with him. And so he had sent an email to my professor and was like, oh, does someone want to go to Singapore this summer and come work in our group? And she asked me because she knows I like to travel and stuff. So I was like, <laughs> obviously, I want to go to Singapore. Yeah. <laughs> so that was mostly it. And then the coming up with what the research would be was kind of like the secondary part to, I don't want to go to Asia. <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. So this networking thing seems to yeah. Yeah, <laughs> recurring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go to conferences and meet people from other countries. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, that's pretty much how it came about. And so I haven't finished up with that data right now, but it's... The research was focused on studying sodium and potassium and grain boundaries in six. How did the work environment in Singapore compare to that of, say, Japan or something? Uh, that's a great question. I would say Singapore, my experience was more similar to the U.S., actually. Mm. So Singapore is more similar to the U.S. than it was to Japan. In Japan, they're really, really hard workers, which is kind of like a stereotype. But, I mean, people there are at work all day long. Whereas in Singapore, people are also there, like, really long hours. But it has a little bit more of a work-life balance feeling than than did to me in Japan. Yeah, and just overall lifestyle, I think, is a little bit more relaxed. Mm. It's like tropical islandy in Singapore. It's very, very tropical, very humid. So I think that follows like a little bit. So, so you have to do some uh, traveling while you're in Singapore too. Yeah. yeah, I traveled most weekends actually. So I got to go to Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia, and Indonesia. I went oh, wow. to Bali, yeah. which is really a great experience. Like to see some of the different cultures in Southeast Asia and, and learn about their history mainly, I guess, yeah. is what interests me. Cool. So did a bit of traveling around in the neighboring countries and stuff. Uh, what else in Singapore were you able to, to see? Uh, yeah, so Singapore is a pretty small island nation south of Malaysia. And it's actually been recently gained its independence. So it's actually a very new country. It's only 50 years old. And I think one of my major interests is with island nations, they have this high need for being self-sustainable because they're, you know, floating in the middle of a body of water with no, no <laughs> yeah. real land, interland transportation for goods and things like that. Um, so one of the things that really interested me in Singapore is this um, concept of water, like wastewater repurposing. So one of the projects, major projects that they're looking at doing is taking wastewater, basically from toilets and sewage, gross things, and um, filtering it enough that it becomes potable water that you can drink safely. And so obviously people are on all different ranges of the spectrum and how they feel about drinking wastewater. But they, as a nation, they're, you know, 
feel like it's important to be able to really make the most of all of the water that they have access to. So that's definitely something that I found really interesting and engaging. Is that uh, something you'll be doing as a, as a side project in addition to your research work, or do you have anything else going on with that? Yeah, so right now I have a little like mini side project on uh, water filtration powered by solar energy. Okay. <laughs> All right, <so> <laughs> um, yeah. Water energy access. Exactly. <laughs> and so that project is kind of a multitude of goals, I guess. But the main goal is understanding like in rural or underdeveloped areas, how how people gain access to water and how the privatization of water influences basically the water resources and the access that they have. So it's actually like a huge problem is major corporations coming in and privatizing clean water that normally very poor people in the area were able to just go access from a river themselves. And these companies come in and fence off the land and say, okay, we own this water now and make these people who are really, really incredibly poor now purchase water that they were getting for free. How are you studying this? Are you able to collect data on, on what you're researching? Yeah, so what we're working on is we were working with a small community in Colombia, uh, South America. And we are studying this community. They live on a river and the river upstream is used very heavily for mining. And so because of that, these mining companies take water in and then output really polluted water. And so the river water is really, really dirty. And basically what we're studying is we're doing actual water sampling. So studying like water quality testing of the river and tap water, bottled water. So the majority of what they consume in that area is bottled, but they come in these soft plastic bags. And you can tell like from the heat that the plastic degrades, it has like a plastic taste in the water which is really bad. Yeah. And so it's really unfortunate, you know, that their natural water resource has been like totally polluted and destroyed by industry. So as I said, we're doing water sampling and then we're doing a lot of like surveying and interviewing people. What is your perception of clean water? Like why, why, why do you purchase the type of water that you do? Bottled water over well water, for instance, is also used pretty heavily. And you can really see like, as you would expect that it has large dependency on how much money people make. So poor people aren't buying even bottled water. They're drinking a lot of questionable water that sits in plastic garbage bins, basically. So what we've done so far is we've built a, at the local school, we built a uh, water filter that runs on a solar panel to help educate the community on how to test for clean water, how you can also build like a very basic, simple water filter, filter for your house. Some basic concepts, because a lot of it actually is that the people are lacking in education and they don't know how to identify safe when water safe or when it's not. So who's the team that's going down there and doing this work? Yeah, so the team is myself and two other women who are working for a different ERC or engineering research center. They work for NUT. I have no idea. Nanotechnology enabled water treatment. I think yeah, it's what's Wow, I did it. So they work for NUT and so they're really the water experts and I'm really the connecting the solar panel That's expert. Really. It's really a water project, but overall humanitarian, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and the I guess the project came about through the Igret Sun program, which is a graduate research funding opportunity. So this is a recurring uh, project then that you'll be traveling again more yeah. frequently? Or? Yeah, well, the project oh. funding ends in December. Mm. Uh, so it, the project overall will have been a, about a year and a half of work. So it's kind of like a short-term project. Will you be going back to Columbia one more time? Probably one more time, yeah. So to finish the water sampling, one of the things that we want to do is um, in Columbia, because it's also equatorial, it gets like crazy rainy season, like studying how the water in the river and in wells changes with the changing season. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, how the rainy season has a dramatic effect yeah. on their water. Maybe this is getting into tenuous waters, pardon the pun, uh, but <laughs> is that, yeah, I couldn't help it, I'm sorry. Uh, th this sounds like it could be a very sort of political um, issue, more so than a engineering problem. Mm -hmm. Like definitely you can have engineering solutions, but maybe a way to, is to attack the source of the issue. And uh, is that part of this project at all, or is that just additional things that you guys keep in mind, but don't really interact with? Because it's such a small community, 
and in Colombia, it's kind of neglected, honestly, mm. like politically, I would say that those types of areas don't get that much attention mm. in terms of energy grid access as well. They're really, really limited how they're connected to the grid. Because of that, I would actually say it's even almost in this community itself, less of a political issue and more of a cultural belief issue, mm. which is that people like it's a small town. So people talk to each other and they, when you tell someone something, they're like, oh, I heard this from this person. And I believe, you know, what they told me. And so if someone tells you like, oh, the river water is really tainted, don't drink it. Everyone in the community slowly catches wind and they're like, oh, we can't drink the river water. And so that's actually a lot of what's happened is when we did water sampling, we found that there was not a significant amount of heavy metals in the river water compared to any of the other water sources. So it's actually like you wouldn't want to drink it. There's trash in it compared to tap water. But it's in terms of contaminants, not significantly worse. Hmm. But that doesn't matter to them, like because they're their perception and like the social and cultural you know knowledge that they have tells them that that's bad water and they won't drink it. So they're very like rigid almost in their mindset about what they can drink and what they won't drink. So I think that's why we thought really the education part of it was most important is like trying to rather than just like hearsay be the way that these people, they obtain knowledge, have it be like really scientifically based. You can test your water now and understand what what you shouldn't drink, basically. Yeah, be a lot of uh, learnings taken from that project and translated into uh, photovoltaics for here in the U.S. because a lot of um, perceptions surrounding cost mm -hmm. of solar and, and infrastructure and things like that. that that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, cool. it's kind of like an economic problem, I guess, right? Which is people's behavior doesn't always match logically what makes the most sense, but their behavior is what's reflected in terms of consumerism. So how they purchase water bottles versus, you know, paying for their water, local water utility, right? And so it's like really understanding the people themselves and their perceptions. That's really sometimes the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And that would be true, I think, of solar as well. Well, I think that's uh, all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you again for tuning in. We will have the next episode of PodQuest coming up soon, talking with some other graduate students about their work. PodQuest is a production of the graduate students of the Quest Engineering Research Center. Find out more at quest.asu.edu. That's Q-E-S-S-T dot A-S-U dot E-D-U. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are the opinions of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Department of Energy. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time.